In the summer of 1937, a young man stepped up to the pulpit to preach his very first sermon. It was in a small Baptist church in Florida where he was a last-minute replacement. The young man was so frightened that he hadn't slept the night before and prepared four different sermons and hoped that one of them could be good enough for at least 20 or 30 minutes of preaching. There were 40 people present that day to hear his sermon, and the young man nervously launched into sermon number one. It seemed to be over almost as fast as it started, so he started the second sermon, and then the third and the fourth. Then he sat down. Eight minutes. That was all that it took to preach all four sermons. He was so humiliated that he decided that day he should never preach again. Yet that night he heard the call of God say to him, Unless, unless you preach the gospel, how will people hear the good news and believe in me? He fell to his knees in that moment and said yes to what God asked of him. This young man was Billy Graham. Billy Graham would one day preach the Christian gospel to over 215 million people in over 185 countries. Billy Graham has been credited with preaching to more people than anyone else in history, not counting the additional millions he has addressed through radio, television, and the written word. Billy Graham was the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. We're ambassadors for Christ. The Bible says we're a peculiar people, set apart under Christ. And we're to be shining witnesses. One of the things that's so great about working here at C4 is we work with such talented people, and, and I just want to say thank you to the folks who uh, helped put that together, and uh, you know, just such an encouragement to us. Well, I want to say a huge hi to those of you who are here this morning and uh, joining us in person, and then a huge hi to the online folks who will be joining us a little bit later on this week. I just want to let you know how super excited I am this morning, actually, because we're starting a brand new series of messages that we're calling Unless. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to take Sunday mornings and we're going to unpack various pieces of Unless. We're going to be looking at the scriptures as a source of encouragement and inspiration as we think about what God is doing uniquely here at C4 Church. And not only are we going to look at what God is uniquely doing here at C4 Church, and I believe that he is doing some unique things, but we're going to be looking over these seven weeks at what is my part to play in that, what is your part to play in this unique move of God. Because we want to see what God has already begun among us. We want to see it continue, and we would like to see it flourish We're using Psalm 127 in verse 1 as a kind of an anchor verse for the whole series. Psalm 127, 1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen guard in vain. We're really convinced that God is doing something unique and wonderful here at C4. Something that we've prayed about intensely for more than two years And we believe that the time is right to talk about it publicly, about what God is doing. And equally importantly, we need to talk about what is my part to play in that and what is your part to play in that to see this move of God continue. It was Dr. Zeus in the Lorax that said, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And that really kind of drives to the heartbeat of what we're talking about here. We believe that God is building his house. 
But we believe that God is up to something that necessitates my involvement and your involvement. We believe that God is watching over our city and is watching over our region. But he wants us to stand guard along with him, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, and be a part of what God is doing. And that's what this whole series is all about. It's an encouragement I hope that it's an inspiration for you. I, I hope that you get excited throughout this series and you begin to see with eyes wide open what God is doing amongst us here and that you feel and you sense a call to get involved with what God is doing. So this morning I get to kick off this series and I'm excited about that with this, unless we believe. This is where we started out in September 23rd of this year. Seems like a long, long time ago, but on September 23rd, Pastor John started out our theme this year, Believe. You see it on the banners in the auditorium here? And on the 23rd of September, Pastor John stepped up here and he said, our theme for this year is Believe. And so a lot has happened since September 23rd of this year in our world, in our lives, in our community of faith. So... We've been concentrating on believe. And so this morning, I want to kick this series off with unless we believe. And so what I would like to do, if you have a Bible with you this morning, is uh, whether you're using an electronic Bible like the one that I'm using up here, or whether you're using a paper Bible and there'll be, uh, all the verses will be on the screens, we're going to camp this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11 and going all the way through to the first two verses of chapter 6. Now, it sounds like a lot, but it's not, okay? So we'll be all right. Unless we believe, unless we believe that God is up to something, unless we really believe that God has initiated something unique here at C4, unless we believe that this is a time of Jesus drawing near to us as individuals and as a church. Unless we believe, we'll never really understand the part that God is calling us to play. And it is my hope this morning that I can help you believe that Jesus is up to something here among us at C4. I remember hearing Rick Warren say this one time. He said, you know what? Here's the job of every Christian. Find out what God is doing and just get involved. (laughs) And and that's really what we're, we're talking about here. What is God doing here at C4? What is God uniquely doing among us as a congregation? And let's find out what God is doing and let's get involved in that. J. Edwin Orr, the great uh, Irish historian, said, Revival is a move of God, yes, but it is not exclusively such a work of God that people do not have a part to play in it. I I remember hearing him say that, and and I was just struck by it, because I'd always thought that when God moved in revival or in awakening in an area, that God would just sweep in and would just do everything, and we'd all just step over onto the sidelines and just watch God do his thing. But I've come to realize, having experienced a season of revival in another church, and having seen what God is doing here at C4, that God actually doesn't want us on the sidelines. He wants us actually to get off the sidelines and get in the parade. That's what God is calling us to. But unless we believe that God is uniquely doing something, that'll never happen. 
So I want to turn to the scriptures this morning, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to help us see that God is doing something, and that as God is doing something, what is my response to what God is already doing? What is your response to what God is already doing among us? So let's just pray for a second, okay? So Jesus, um, risen Christ, I now ask for clarity. And I ask, Lord, that the things that I have prepared to share with my friends, my brothers and my sisters, that you just help me to communicate it clearly. Help me not to get in the way, Jesus, because I want this to be so clear. You've always said that you'd honor your word, and so now as I try my best to properly handle the scriptures and divide the word of truth, I pray, Jesus, by your spirit, that you do your work in my heart and in my friend's heart so that we'd really see you clearly and know what you, want, what you require of us. And I pray that in your name. Amen. Amen. So the book of 2 Corinthians, I mean, we just need to understand something really quickly. The book of 2 Corinthians was written as a response It's actually Paul's very lengthy response, Uh, he tends to do that a lot, to criticism of his ministry and his claims of apostleship. That's what the whole book of 2 Corinthians is all about. And in the first half of chapter 5, the the half that we can't spend enough time in this morning, you can read it for yourselves, but but here's what Paul does. Paul comes to the Corinthians and and he's weaving this this master kind of argument in defense of his ministry and his apostleship and uh, and everything that he's doing. And in the first half of chapter 5, Paul says, look, you have the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, as a deposit guaranteeing an inheritance to come. Because one day we're not actually going to be in what he calls this earthly tent, which is code language for this body. He says, one day, actually, we are going to leave this body. That's code language for we're all going to die. And when we die, some things are going to happen. And one of the things that he concentrates on in chapter 5 is that when we die, we're actually going to stand before Jesus. And there's going to be a judgment. And we're all going to have to give an account now, the judgment that we're going to face that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is not a judgment of heaven or hell. See, that's always settled for the believer when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's looked after. That's taken care of when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. When we cross that line, when we ask him to be our Lord and our Savior and invite him into our lives, that's settled once and for all. But the judgment that Paul is talking about is, is a judgment where Jesus is going to ask me and Jesus is going to ask you What did you do for me when you lived in this life? It's really quite a piercing question. What did you do with everything that I gave you? What did you do with all of the time and the talent and the resources that I gave you? What did you do with the opportunities that I gave you? And I am going to have to stand in front of the risen, exalted, glorified Christ and give an account. And so will you. And that's what Paul has just finished reminding the Corinthian Christians God is doing something, and we have a part to play in what God is doing. Now, I need to, uh, to say this before we dive into the scriptures, that I'm not here this morning to try and convince you that God is doing something new and wonderful and marvelous at C4. I'm not here to try and convince you of that. I'm here to tell you that he's already at work among us and has been in a very unique way since November of 2010. 
The evidence, I believe, is all around us. The evidence is in your life. The evidence is in my life. The evidence is in, in, our, in our connect groups. The, the evidence is in our conversations if we have ears to hear and eyes to see. In November 2010, we began to see God move by bringing personal renewal to people. And I myself, Dave Adams, have personally been a witness to God wonderfully working in over 80 people's lives. I kind of tried to track it this week as I was doing my preparation, and there's been some circumstances where I wasn't involved and I wasn't included. But I can say with surety before you this morning that I have seen God work in people's lives. People falling in love with Jesus all over again. People confessing hidden sins that they'd held on to and harbored for years and years. People encountering Jesus and actually hearing the risen Christ speak to them and speak over them and call them into ministry. People getting set free from the demonic and the list goes on and on. And I know that many of you know what I'm talking about. Then who could forget the teaching that Pastor John did on spiritual gifts and how hundreds of people, me included, people here, how we walked to the front of this auditorium when John taught on particular gifts and we walked down here and and, and we stood in, in front of him and in front of our leaders, our fellow leaders, and we said, would you pray for me? I think I have these gifts. Would you pray that the Holy Spirit, you know, really brings these gifts to light, that they're ignited with a new flame and a new fire? And would God use me in this area for his glory and for the church's benefit? And then we stood down here and we said, and we pray also for the character to go with the using of these gifts, whether they be love gifts or power gifts or word gifts. And then recently... John preached on Lazarus, and hundreds of us stood, and we raised our hands because we had experienced Jesus moving in our Lazarus moments in our lives. And I remember telling Pastor John, I was out visiting one of my sons out west at the time, and I got to listen, I was listening to it on my phone uh, as I was flying back from Winnipeg on the plane, and when he got to the part where he said, and if Jesus has moved and you stand up, well, it was during a particularly bumpy time in the plane, so we had to have our seatbelts fastened, but I raised my hands in the plane because I've experienced Lazarus moments in my life too, things that were dead And I thought hopeless and helpless. And Jesus stepped in and brought things back to life. And then recently on Easter, on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, hundreds of new people came to C4. And some of you are still with us. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We're so glad you're here. We've seen a positive turnaround in our finances at C4. Now please hear me really clearly. We're not done yet, okay? You need to still keep giving, and we, we invite you to sacrificially give. But you know what? I think in, as far as my foggy old memory you know, it works, I think it's the first time since I've ever been here that our giving exceeds our budget. <laughs> praise God. Yeah. And I say praise God and thank you. Thank you for your obedient hearts towards all that God is doing. And then last week I appealed for extra help with families by asking many of you to get involved with C4 Kids so that mums and dads and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas could actually be in here and that they could encounter Jesus in worship and that they could sit under the teaching and they could grow in their Christian walk. And over 60 of you responded last week and throughout the week. 
And Pastor Jillian was so excited this week. She sat in my office and she said, Dave, she said, it's like I was just sucking, if you know Jillian, I was like sucking on a big oxygen mask. I just feel so energized this week. It's been so refreshing to talk personally with over 50 people this week and hear about their excitement about getting involved with children's ministries so that other people can be in here. See, see, you know what? God is at work among us. Yeah, praise God. And thank you again to those people. So I'm not here to try and convince you that God is moving. I'm not trying to whip something up here at C4. I'm just here to tell you to look around. Talk to your friends. Talk in your connect groups. Let's get open. Let's get honest with each other. Let's talk about the stuff that Jesus is doing. Let's be people who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And so we come to our text this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. And I want to share some thoughts with you. Two big overarching thoughts that I want to, I want to share this morning. The first one is this. We really, need to, you know, we really need to understand the purpose of believing. And having understood the purpose of believing, why believing is really important. Because unless we believe, nothing's really going to happen. We're not going to get involved. First of all, the purpose of believing. And then secondly, I want to talk about some of the results of actually believing that God is doing something unique among us. So that's where I'm going to go this morning. So first of all, we'll never understand the purpose of believing unless we remember the coming judgment. Remember I told you that prior to verse 11 in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that the Apostle Paul has just told the church, the followers of Jesus, that one day they will face judgment, a day of accounting for the work done, whether good or bad. And then he says this in verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord... We try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Paul is talking about real fear here. You know, the fear of God. Now, for sure, the word fear that is used here has a sense of awe and reverence about it. But make no mistake, what Paul is saying is, since we know what it is to have holy fear of God. Since we know that one day we're actually going to stand before not Jesus meek and mild with long hair and a nice beard and a little halo over his head, but the risen, exalted Christ that the Apostle John saw in Revelation chapter 1, then one day I and you are physically going to stand before him. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we need to do something. We need to remember, Christians, that there is a coming judgment for us. Because if we don't remember that there's a coming judgment one day, that we're going to have to give an account for everything that we have done and everything that we have used that the Lord has given us, we'll never step outside of our comfort zones. We'll never sacrifice. We'll never make room. We'll never get involved. We'll never seek out what God is doing. And we'll never hunger and thirst for more of Jesus. We'll never really believe unless we remember that there's a coming judgment. See, God, I'm convinced, is doing something unique here at C4 among us. And the Scripture cautions us, the Scripture urges us, and I appeal to you this morning to remember that there is a coming judgment for me and for you. And unless we really believe then we'll never really do our part in what God wants to do during this time of his unique visitation. Believing in what God is up to helps to prepare me, and it helps to prepare you for that coming judgment. 
unless we believe, we'll never do what he wants us to do. The second purpose of believing is this. We'll never understand the purpose of believing unless we check for pure motives. For the Apostle Paul, the reason for doing something was just as important as what was actually done. The motive behind the action was crucial and needed to be understood and needed to be tested. Remember, like that's why he's writing 2 Corinthians. He's been accused of some things. He's been accused of being a braggart as, as a showboat, as a guy who's egotistical, that it's all about you, Paul. Oh, Paul, yeah, you're so high and mighty, Paul. And he's saying, no, no. You remember when I came to you? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, read it. When I came to you, I, I didn't come with eloquence, or I didn't come boasting. I came in fear and in trembling, but also with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul says in verses 12 and 13 of our text today, he says, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our minds, it's for the sake of God. If we are in our right minds, it's actually for you. See, Paul is letting his readers in on his motives here. He's assuring them that his motives are pure. In Paul's world, people glorified the outward deed and people who were great orators, and they ignored the inward state of the heart. They ignored the motivation that was behind the preaching. Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of his time with them and of their relationship with each other. Paul is reminding them that in Jesus' kingdom, motives are incredibly important. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Jesus actually said, I don't want to hear about prayer and fasting and giving. Come again, Jesus? Aren't aren't those things really important? And he said, look, I don't care. Away with your prayer and your fasting and your giving if they're done with wrong motives. If you do them to be seen and to be recognized by other people, then they have no part in my kingdom. Even today, church leaders' motives are questioned. At C4, people have questioned our vision statement of a church of 10,000, saying that we're audacious, that we're arrogant, that we're egotistical. But let me just say really clearly to you, we believe that this is God's assignment for our church. And I personally have spent enough time with the leaders of this church weeping over this church and weeping over the lost people of the Durham region to know that this is no ego trip, but a burden, and a weighty burden and assignment that we feel every day. And that's why we have this big vision. We believe that it's God's assignment. We believe it's what our master has called us to do. But we will never understand the purpose of believing in what God is doing and what he wants to do if we don't continually check our motives. Because all of us can fall prey to wrong motives. That's why we do community together. That's why we're a body. So that we can spur one another on. We can provoke one another on towards love and good deeds. The furthering of God's kingdom 
The kingdom of which Jesus is the one and only king and the glory of God is what motivates us here at C4 to do the things that God has asked us to do. Well, and thirdly, we'll never understand the purpose of believing unless we're driven by Christ's love and sacrifice. Paul, the Apostle Paul, reveals the secret that drove him to spend his life the way he did. Like, why did Paul give up all of the power that was coming to him? Because Paul was a very powerful guy. Why did Paul give up a successful religious and a potentially successful political career to become a man who was rejected and despised and hated by so many? And why did he spend his life serving obscure people? Well, verses 14 and 15 of 2 Corinthians 5 help us understand that. Paul writes these words, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What was it that made Paul such a driven person? Christ's love. And remember, it is Christ's love that compelled Paul. Not that Paul loved Jesus, because he didn't at first. And it's not because of my great love for Jesus or your great love for Jesus that we do anything. We must always remember that our love is in response to the great love that Christ has shown to us. He loved us first. While we were still enemies of God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Unless we believe that God is doing something among us, we'll never be driven and compelled by the love and sacrifice of Jesus. Unless we actually open ourselves up to become recipients of the love of Jesus, we will never be compelled to take love to other people. Just over a week ago, Jen and I were visiting with some of our friends in Kenya. One of Jen's uh, very best friend, an Indian woman called Pappy, died from cancer in February. We visited her family while we were in Kenya. Pappy and her husband, Vindi, are Sikhs. They are very wealthy, powerful, influential people, in the Kenyan city of Mombasa, where they own several businesses, including a very large hotel. On the last day of our visit, we met an African woman called Susan, who worked at the hotel. She does manicures and pedicures for guests and tourists. Susan is a follower of Jesus. As Jen and I sat with Susan... She told us how she went to the owner's house one day to give Mama Poppy a pedicure. She walked into the house, she said, and the house was unusually empty. No servants running around, no other families. And as she ventured deeper into the house, it's a large house, she found Pappy weeping loudly from the pain of her cancer. Susan told Jen and I how she quietly approached Pappy and she placed one hand on her forehead and another hand on her leg. And she began to pray out loud to Jesus. She also told us, Susan also told us, 
that after Pappy's death, she approached her husband, Vindy, and invited him to come and meet the pastor of her church, which he did, and this pastor ministered incredibly to this hurting, bereaved, confused man. My point is this. Think about it. An insignificant African female employee, a nobody, approaches these powerful, wealthy owners, and she places her hands on one of them and prays for her in Jesus' name, and then she invites the other one to come and meet with her pastor. She took a huge risk. Either of these actions could have cost her her job and ended her family's livelihood. So why did she do it? Because the love of Christ compelled her. Because she believes that one died for all so that all might live. So we need to understand the purpose of believing. And we need to believe that God is doing something unique here at C4. And I'm here to encourage you today with the strong conviction that not only do I think that God is actually doing something here at C4, but I am convinced along with many of the leaders of this church that God wants to do even more and far greater than he has already done here at C4 Church. And that he wants you to be a part of that. He wants to do some things in you and through you. So we need to understand the purpose of believing. But I also want to suggest that we need to embrace the results of believing. You see, if we believe in what God is up to, and we get involved in helping to perpetuate what God is up to here at C4, it'll mean that we will have to embrace some things, personally and corporately. And that's what I want to look at in verses 16 through to the beginning of chapter 6. The first one is this. We'll never embrace the results of believing unless we adopt a new perspective. In this section of Scripture, Paul is outlining the consequences of believing that God is really at work. He talks about his own perspective and how it, was a, how it was changed so dramatically as a result of believing. Look at verses 16 and 17. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. See, Paul, or Saul, before his conversion... He was bent on persecuting Christians, on murdering them, because he was blinded by his own religiosity. But when he was confronted by the risen Savior Jesus on the road to a city called Damascus, he had his perspective dramatically altered. <laughs> it changed everything for Paul. He realized that all, all of the things that he held so dear in his religion were, were actually not true any longer. All of his biases, all, all, all of the things that he, that, that, that he was so blinded by, all of his prejudices, they melted away when he met the risen and exalted Christ. And that's an enormous perspective shifter. And unless we believe, we'll never see people the way Jesus sees them. Unless we believe, we'll always view people 
from a worldly point of view. We need to find in our testimony not just an assurance of our sins forgiven and a promise of heaven, but we need to find in our testimony, in our own story of our own salvation, a shifting of our perspectives. I grew up in a nominal Christian home. What I mean by that is culturally we were called Christians. We were Christians by name only, not at all by conviction. My parents sent me and my two younger brothers to church so that they could sleep in on a Sunday morning after being at the pub the night before. And so I went to church and Sunday school as a young boy. Church and Sunday school gave me some of the basics of Christianity. I I remembered the stories. I remembered Samson. I I remembered Noah and the big fish. And I remembered those kinds of things. And I remember vividly memorizing my catechism. But it didn't really change my perspective a whole lot. And then as a high school student in Ireland, I got invited to go on a weekend retreat. And I admit before you, my motives were not pure. There were some hot-looking girls going on that retreat. (laughs) Unashamedly. It's reality. You want to really grow a huge youth ministry? Get babes on board. No, it's like... Anyways, I I digress. Um, (laughs) So on on this weekend retreat... I remember, I remember today vividly hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time, plainly, simply told how I had a Savior who loved me, a Savior who died on my behalf, that when he was on the cross, he thought of me, and that he went there willingly in my place. It should have been me, but he went there in my place. And I remember hearing that, and I remember it hitting me like a ton of bricks. I I understood for the first time in my life, it was crystal clear to me. It all made sense, and I knew what God required of me. And that Saturday night, vividly, I remember kneeling by my bed, and I remember saying yes, yes to Jesus. And I asked him to, to come and to forgive me for all that I had done wrong and to begin to change me. I remember getting up from my bed and I going downstairs and some of the, the leaders of the retreat were there. And I went and I told them, I said, I just did it. I just, I just prayed the prayer. I, I just, you know, and they talked to me and they just helped me, you know, they helped make sure that the decision that I had just made was real. And it was real and it was genuine. I went home to my nominal, non-believing family. And I remember telling my mom and my dad, I have become a Christian And I remember them saying, oh, that's so nice. Because they didn't understand what it meant. I told them I've met Jesus. It's changed me. They said, well, that's good. Now go to bed. I went to school on Monday morning. Again, vividly I remember this. I went to school Monday morning. I told all my friends, I've changed. I've met Jesus. Jesus changed my perspective that day, and he's still changing my perspective today. I remember that one of the first things that was an evidence, there was two things that were a huge evidence to me that I'd really made that commitment. The first one is, he cleaned up my mouth. I was foul-mouthed as a teenager. 
took the Lord's name in vain, every sentence, and cursed as much as I could. See, I was trying to hide that I was really just a scared little guy inside. And Jesus changed it like that, cleaned up my mouth. I've never struggled with it since. The other thing that he did for me was he gave me a love for the scriptures. From that first day, I remember opening the scripture, and it was like, have I ever read this book before? To even today, you know, a journey all along the way that Jesus has been changing my perspective. So that today I can't, I can't believe what I'm doing today. I can't believe what God has allowed me to be involved in today. I could never have imagined it. He's just been changing my perspective all along the way. And unless we really believe that God is doing something and we get involved with that and we accept and we believe what God is doing, we'll, we'll never have our perspectives changed. And Jesus really does want to change a lot of our perspectives. Well, we'll never embrace the results of believing unless we accept our new assignment Paul borrows a word from politics to explain another result of believing in God. He he says this in verses 18 through to 21. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Unless we believe in God and what he's doing, we'll never fully embrace our role as ambassadors who have been given the message of reconciliation. You know what an ambassador is, right? I mean, I looked it up this week. Here's the definition of an ambassador. A diplomatic official of the highest rank who has been sent by a sovereign or state as its personal representative. It's pretty cool. We have been sent by Jesus, the sovereign of the kingdom of God, as his personal representative to tell people that our king wants reconciliation. It's a great message, friends. It's a great assignment. But unless we believe that God is doing something, unless we embrace what God is doing here at C4, we will never see ourselves as ambassadors. We will never see ourselves in this high calling as ambassadors of the King Most High with the message of reconciliation to a world that is desperately in need of that kind of message. Unless we believe, we'll never beg We'll never plead. We'll never implore people to be reconciled to God. And then finally, we'll never embrace the results of believing unless we're motivated by a new urgency. In Paul's words to the church, there's an urgency. What Paul is saying, I believe, is that time is running out. There's a deadline. There's a line in the sand. There is a coming, there's coming a great and terrible finality to human history. In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he says this. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive the grace, uh, God's grace in vain. 
For he says, and then he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. And then Paul says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Unless we believe that God is at work and that he wants to do even more here at C4, we will never be motivated by a new urgency. For us here at C4, this, this hits me in two ways, like a ton of bricks. The first is this. Myself and others believe that what we are experiencing here at C4 is a special time of God's favor, a season of the risen Jesus drawing near to us. It's a proximity issue where, where Jesus is drawing near to renew and to revive us as a church. But it won't always be this way. Oh, yes, he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Yes, we believe in the omnipresence of the risen Christ. But there is a time of God's special visitation. There is a season of God's favor. And I want to tell you that I believe that what the scripture is saying to us this morning is, now is that time, C4 Church. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. But that always, it won't always be this way. Friends, honestly, truthfully, I don't want any of you to miss what Jesus has for you during this season of his special visitation. But unless we believe, you'll never be motivated by a new sense of urgency. The second way that this hits me is this. Scripture says, now is the day of salvation. None of us know what will happen to us tomorrow or next week or next year. One day Jesus will return. One day there will be no more opportunity. And for those of you who are still seekers, for those of you who haven't crossed that line of faith yet, respectfully, I want to say to you, what are you waiting for? Now is the day of salvation. John Hyde is one of my spiritual heroes. John Hyde was a missionary to India from 1892 to 1912. And no, I didn't meet him personally. His nickname was Praying Hyde. He got his nickname because he often would spend 30 days and 30 nights in prayer and fasting. And many times his friends observed him on his knees in deep intercession for 36 hours straight. That was the norm of John Hyde's prayer life. John Hyde understood the urgency of God's kingdom. The story is told how John Hyde believed that God had given him a promise that for one year, one person a day would come to faith. And so John Hyde went out and lived his life. And every day that year, 365 people came to know Jesus Christ. The next year, he believed that God promised him that two people a day would come to faith. And he lived his life that year, seeing two people every day come to faith. The following year, 1910, he believed God that four people a day would come to faith through his ministry. And every day, for a year, four people would come to faith. But his friends, in writing about Hyde after he died, said that some days only two people would have come to faith, or only three that day would have come to faith. And John Hyde would go to his room and fall on his knees and ask, what in my life 
is preventing the last one from coming today. He would confess all of his own sin, all of his known sins, his own and the sins of the community, and he would begin to worship and praise Jesus and ask Jesus and beg Jesus because he understood the sense of urgency until every day that last person would come to faith. Four people a day for a whole year. So I appeal to you today as one of your pastors here, as a fellow journeyer with you in this relationship with Jesus Christ and as a community of faith, I appeal to you today. I encourage you to believe, to believe in God, to believe in what he is doing among us and to invite you to receive from him. And I believe there are two groups of people that are here this morning And I want to close with this. The first group of people who are here this morning are those who have not yet crossed that line of faith. You're you're checking out church, maybe. You're investigating Christianity, the claims of Jesus. Is the scripture true? Are these people authentic? Are these people real? Are they just blowing smoke like so many other in, in society today? And I applaud you for being here or for watching online. But I want to I want to instill in you this sense of urgency. Today is the day of salvation. Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't even know what this afternoon holds or next week or next year. And so I'd like to pray for you this morning. I'd like to pray that you would have the courage to invite the risen Christ to come into your life and to change you from the inside out and to change your perspective and to set you on this journey. So I'm going to invite everyone just to close their eyes and bow their head, and you could pray along with me. But specifically, while people are not looking around, if you want me to pray for you in this regard, that you would come to know Jesus this morning, if you just quickly slip up your hand, then I will pray for you specifically. So we're just going to take one second to do that. So just slip your hand up. Thank, thank you. Anyone else yet? Over there, I see you. Okay, let's pray. So, Jesus, these three people that have raised their hands, I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful that your spirit is at work in their hearts right now. And Jesus, I pray that you'd continue to reveal yourself to them. And for those of you who raised your hands, maybe you could just pray this inside, quietly, inside, as an honest expression to God. Dear Jesus, I believe that you love me. Jesus, I believe that you died for me and that you rose again. It should have been me on the cross, but you took my place. And I thank you and I accept what you did on my behalf. Now come be my Savior, my Lord, the King of my life, and change me now from this day forward for the rest of my life. And I give you thanks that you have actually done this and that I have become a new person. In Jesus' name, amen. And what, keep your heads bowed because there's a second group of people that I think are here this morning and I have to say this. There's a group of you who have already believed in Jesus for salvation. You, you call yourselves Christ followers. You're a disciple. But I want you to 
I want to invite you to believe in the unique things that God is doing among us here at C4 for yourself. You know, maybe you've got questions. Maybe you've heard that God is doing some unique things in your friends, and they've told you about what God's doing, but he hasn't shown up in any unique way in your life yet. You know, maybe, maybe your theology is stopping you. Maybe, maybe this doesn't jive well with your theology. Maybe it's your pride getting in the way, or maybe you're just plain afraid. I'd actually really like to pray for you, too. And so if you find yourself in that camp, could you just quickly slip up your hand so that I can pray for you? Thank you for your honesty. So Jesus, you know those who have raised their hands and who are genuinely struggling. Jesus, they love you. They're your children. And they know that you're a good God. They know, they know that, you, that you really do love them and you actually like them too. And now, Jesus, I would ask that you would do whatever it takes in their life now to dispel their theology or their fear or the other blocks that are stopping your work in them. And I pray, Jesus, that you would show up in a new way in their lives, that you would come with a new power in their lives, and that you would begin to flood your grace and your love and your Spirit's power upon them so that they're changed forever. And Lord... I know that you never humiliate us, but sometimes you humble us so that you can work. So do whatever it takes in our lives for you to do this. And we will give you praise and we will give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for your courage this morning. We're going to respond now in a time of communion. A communion is just a great response corporately for all of you who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, for all of you who have come to faith in him. The juice that we take represents the shed blood of Christ on the cross of Calvary. The cracker helps remind us that Jesus' body was actually broken for us. That what he did on the cross really cost him, but he did it for us. And so as we come, if you're not on the run from God, if if you're in good relationship with Jesus and with those around about you, if there's no hidden sin in your life and and there's something that, that you're just... You know, you're fighting with Jesus about it. If that's not you, then come and celebrate and rejoice and give thanks and worship through this act of communion. We're going to do come forward communion. Some people are going to come and serve, and I'm going to ask them to just move now to to their places. But also, I want to remind you that there's these offering baskets. When we do come forward communion, we remember that God has been good to us, but we remember that there are people in our own community who are in very desperate physical and emotional need. And and we would invite you to, to give towards meeting those needs so that in a very practical way, we can help meet the needs of our brothers and sisters who are in trouble. And so uh, pray about that. Think about that as you come and you take communion. And as God leads you, give generously and sow into the lives of other people. And Steph and the team are going to lead us in worship as we do this. Thank you.